Well, good morning. Welcome to Help Community Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us. Those of you joining us online from your dear stands, welcome as well. Um, I want to give uh, many thanks for the prayers that you all offered up to God for my ordination council this past Monday. Um, it went well. I also want to thank you for preparing me for it. Um, as quite honestly, as I sat there in front of them, I really felt like I felt really comfortable because a lot of the questions they asked are similar to the many questions you all asked me and challenged me on as you challenge what I believe as I uh, tr try, attempt to train you in the truth. Uh, so I thank you for your faithfulness to ask questions, to challenge me, to dig deeper. Um, it kind of did make a council uh, seem rather um, like home. Uh, so thank you uh, for that. Um, if you note on the back of the bulletin, we have a lot of passages on there for this morning. Uh, I have taken some of them out of the message this morning for the sake of clarity and time, but they are there for you to perhaps reference later um, for the ones that I, I don't go over um, explicitly or specifically. Uh, but if you are a note taker, um, I hope you're ready. Uh, there's a lot that we have to uh, go over with this passage. I myself uh, was up late last night uh, wrestling with do I need to rewrite my whole sermon or not. Um, it is a, the passage before us is a challenging uh, passage, as if you're unfamiliar with it, you are about uh, to find out. So if you take notes, make sure your hands are warmed up, loose, and ready to go. Uh, before we get to the message, let's go to our Father in heaven, uh, seeking uh, much-needed wisdom and discernment uh, this morning. Holy Father, we come before you this morning seeking wisdom, and we do so confidently, knowing that you give generously to those who seek it, and you do so without reproach. And as such, Father, we ask that you would forgive us for our sins, for our unfaithfulness this past week or even this morning, and that this morning you would help us to be edified and equipped and sanctified, that we would hear your voice, that we would strive to know your word, and that we would strive to put your word to practice, that we may discern good from evil, and that we would seek your glory in all things. Help us not to be distracted by the worries, cares, pleasures, and delights of this age, nor let us become tiresome, perhaps, from the difficulty of the text or the perceived complexity of it. But help us to be focused. Help us to do the hard work that is necessary for the fruit that is awaiting for us, Father. It is a good fruit. It is a truth that will help us know you and your Son and the Spirit all the more. So, Father, we ask these things for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, and by the name and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, if you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. That is our passage this morning. If you need a Bible, you, uh, we got Bibles underneath the seats around you, so feel free to grab one and open up there. If you recall, our, pa our passage this morning is in the middle of the third warning in Hebrews. Right? The third warning of Hebrews goes from Hebrews 5.11 to Hebrews 6.12. It is bookend by the Greek word uh, for lazy, for sluggish, the, 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 the warning by the author, do not be dull of hearing, do not be lazy in what you have heard. Last week, we went over Hebrews 5.11 to 6.3, where the author shamed his audience, called out their laziness in what they have heard, and their, how they are childish, and they're not mature, and how they should be mature and how they should move on in the faith. 
And then today we are in the illustration that the author uses to illustrate the danger of those who remain dull in hearing, who remain sluggish. And then next week we will close out the warning with verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6 where the author, after shaming his audience, after giving them an illustration, then exhorts, encourages, builds them up and calls them to imitate those of the faith. Now, why is this passage difficult? Why is it controversial? Well, it's because of the many questions that it poses. For example, does our passage, as we're going to see in a bit, does this passage teach that believers, can they fall away from the faith? Can they commit apostasy? Is the author here, is he strictly speaking of backslidden believers who lose rewards, not their salvation, but they lose rewards, they lose blessedness in this life. Maybe they're even just the fact that they live. Maybe God just strikes them down. Is the author writing to those who have, are currently, or are close to experiencing what he speaks about? Is the author actually talking about whether or not those who have sinned, after being baptized and receiving communion, can they be rebaptized? Or how can anything be impossible for God, especially as it relates to a person desiring to be restored through repentance? And these are only just some of the many questions that this passage brings about. And they're not ridiculous questions when you read the passage. Some of the issues arise by reading into the text our own preconceived theological presuppositions. We come to the text with a, our own theological view of, of salvation in the Christian life, and so we interpret the text from that. Some arise because we ignore what Scripture teaches elsewhere, because we ignore what we, we shouldn't ignore what, what Scripture teaches elsewhere. We do ignore theology. Others arise because we don't stick to the text. Or we treat the passage as if it exists within a vacuum. We'll come to the passage and we'll just look at verses 4 and 6 and go, well, this is verses 4 and 6, this is what it says, and we'll ignore what preceded, what follows, we'll ignore the rest of the letter. So it is important that we consider all these things. And so you can see the work before us, it is there. So before we look at the passage itself, I do want us to consider some big picture items of the letter, of the epistle of Hebrews, that will help us understand our passage. First is the audience. The author is writing to believers, right? The whole letter is addressed to believers, to those who profess faith in Christ. He's not writing to non-believers, right? He's writing to those who believe in the Son, who believe Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior. Nor is he writing to an intentional mixed bag or an intentional mixed audience, meaning that there's not a certain portion of the audience that say, we believe in Christ, and then another portion of the audience that openly says, we don't. No, he's writing to people who believe, at least they feel they believe, they, they claim to believe in Christ. So 100% of them will openly say, I believe in Jesus. That does not mean that everyone does believe in Jesus. Every church, and I'm sure the, the author is aware of this as well, every church, every body of Christ and the visible church, the local church, is a mixed bag, but it's not intentional. For example, we don't have members of this church who say, I don't believe in Christ. But we have members of the church who quite possibly, quite likely, are not actually part of the universal church. It's the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goat, the good fish and the bad fish, the, th the people that won't be sorted out until the end of days when, when Christ comes back and he has his angels to gather the unrighteous 
from the righteous. So the author, again, is writing and speaking to those who profess faith, and as far as they are concerned with themselves, they believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, whether that's a reality or not for them. So he's treating them as believers. Second thing we need to look at is the use of the third person. Notice how the warning starts with the first person plural, we, us, and second person plural, you all or y'all, um, in verses um, 11 through uh, 3 of chapter 6. And then he switches to the third person in our warning, in, in, excuse me, in our illustration, in our passage this morning, verses 4 through 8, and then in verse 9 through 12, he switches back to the first and second person plural. And when we look at all the other warnings in Hebrews, all the other he- warnings in Hebrews are first and second person um, plural. This is the only warning where he uses the third person, um, and, and he uses it in the illustration. The third thing that we need to consider, and the last big picture item I want us to consider, are the other warnings. How does this warning fit in with the other warnings? How does it compare? And all the warnings, if we pay attention, all of them point essentially to the same consequence, and they all point and they all feed the, same, the, the main purpose of the letter. So let us do a quick review of the five warnings. The first two we've already covered. The first one is Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. If you recall that, the author is like, pay attention. Don't neglect this message. This is a greater message. Because the days of old, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But today, in this age, he speaks to us by the Son, who, who is greater. So let us not neglect the greater message, the greater salvation. Because if we do, how then should we escape? How will we escape? And so the consequence there is judgment. The second warning, Hebrews 3.12 through 4.13, the author tells us not to harden our hearts to his voice as those in the wilderness, as those in the days of the rebellion. And the consequence there was you will not enter into the promised rest. You will, if you fall away, if you fail to heed his voice, you will fall away, you will not enter into the promised rest. And so the consequence there essentially is judgment. Then we have our warning this morning, Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, 12, where the author says, don't be sluggish in hearing. That's the warning. And the consequence, well, we'll talk about that in a moment. The fourth warning, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, is if we keep sinning in light of the good news, in light of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done of his shed blood, having put our trust in him, how much worse will our punishment be compared to those in the old covenant? So again, the consequence there is judgment. Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, the warning there is don't refuse the one who is speaking. Don't neglect the son. Don't neglect the message. Again, the consequence, if they of the Old Testament did not escape having been warned on earth, how will we escape having been warned from heaven? And again, the consequence is judgment. And all these judgments are eternal. Remember last week, in, in uh, verse 2 of chapter 6, eternal judgment is a basic elementary doctrine of our faith. And so the author is warning us so we will not end up in eternal judgment. None of these warnings explicitly speak to, showing my hand a little bit here, a loss of rewards. And we will deal with how our passage deals with that or does not deal with rewards. So with the stage set, hopefully your appetite is wet for this. Let us begin by reading our passage, uh, verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6. For it is impossible 
In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So let's look at the first phrase. For it is impossible. Impossible to do what? In order to know what that is, you have to keep going until you find the, um, the phrase found in verse 6, where it says, to restore them again to repentance. You have to find the infinitive to restore, and that is what is impossible. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. And then everything that falls in between from that first phrase to verse 6, to restore them again, everything that's in between those two phrases, those two clauses, um, describes those to whom it is impossible. So let's look at who these people are. These people are those who have been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. I do want to note that King James here makes this last participle conditional. So we have these participles. There are the six of them here, if you include the last one there. Uh, they're participles describing this group of people to whom it is impossible. And the last one, fallen away, then have fallen away, the King James puts an if there. It makes it conditional by saying if, then have they fall, if they have fallen away, uh, but that is an interpretive error. Uh, then have fallen away is connected with all the other participles by the Greek conjunction chi, which we find consistently between each of these participles describing this group of people, along with the fact that all these participles are bookend by the clause for, the, for it is impossible to restore them to repentance. So they're all, they're all connected, and it's not a conditional, it is a matter of fact, then have fallen away. It is a statement. So the question, though, for us remains, are these false converts, are they believers who lose their salvation or lose their rewards? Or is the author merely referencing the wilderness generation or is it something else? Well, let's look at these descriptions. The first one is been enlightened. What does been enlightened mean? Those who say, well, this is the wilderness generation go, well, this is like the pillar of fire that, that led the people in the wilderness by, by night, right? Exodus 13, 21. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. But that description, the lights by night, not by day. It, it's not clear. It's not explicit. Some would say, but the author just talked about the rebellion in, in the second warning, Hebrews 3, 4. So this is, this is an echo. It's fresh in their mind. But again, the author talks about this enlightenment as once. It's a decisive event. Not an ongoing thing, but once been enlightened. In Hebrews 10, 32, when the author uses the same word for, for enlightened, he's clearly talking about conversion. There he writes, recall the former, former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle of sufferings. He's talking about there the conversion of the believer, of the person. 
Now, certainly that doesn't mean that it must mean the same thing here, but without the context indicating otherwise, there's no reason to believe it's something else. If this was it, we had none of the other participles, yeah, maybe that would be a fair argument. But we do have the other participles. We do have the other words. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 speaks of non-believers as not being enlightened. He taught, and he uses the same Greek word. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light or to keep them from being enlightened of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there are arguments also that this enlightenment pertains not to conversion. Some talk about how this is people receiving the word. The, the, the word comes to them and they've been enlightened to the truth of, gospel, of the gospel, but they haven't fully embraced it. They have not fully received it. And again, that would be a fair argument if this was the only participle, if this was it. But it's not. This participle has four other friends, actually has five other friends, and those friends would dictate otherwise. So let's look at the next parsable, the next descriptive word. He goes on and says, having tasted the heavenly gift. Now, again, some would say, well, taste the heavenly gift. Isn't that manna? Well, where has the author mentioned that yet? Why would that all of a sudden come into play? And tasted here is a reference to experience. It is not actual eating. Um, or receiving communion, as, as some have argued, and I would say receiving communion would be a better argument, but again, communion's not mentioned in Hebrews at all, and that's us reading into the text. Some have argued that the tasting is a partial experience. It doesn't mean that it, it was a full experience. They, they have had a, a, a hint, almost like a, 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 a taste sample, like a cold stone or something. They've had a spoon, but not the whole dish. They haven't truly experienced the heavenly gift. But again, that's not how taste is used in Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.9, the author uses taste there to refer to a full experience when he talks about the, the death of, of Christ. Talk about, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It is not partial. And again, Maybe if this was the only verse that we had, we could maybe open the door for it, it being a possibility. But, what, but with what follows, we don't. We have a context that helps us to understand what the author means here. But the question remains, what, did, what gift did they experience? What gift did they taste? It could be the gift of the Spirit. This is what Peter talks about in Acts 2.38. When people say, what must we do? He says, repent, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Could be the gift of righteousness that Paul talks about in Romans 5.17. For if because of one man's, it's Adam's, trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Both of those, though, speak to the believer being converted, a, a non-believer being converted, being regenerated, and getting everlasting life. And then the next one takes it even further, have shared in the Holy Spirit. Just as taste represented a full experience, this sharing is a full sharing. It is a full participation. It is not a partial sharing. This Greek word, me'echo, is used elsewhere in Hebrews 3.1. 
where the author talks about how believers share in the heavenly calling. You who share, you who echo in the heavenly calling. And then he talks, he uses the same word for share uh, for Jesus as he shares in the flesh of blood in Hebrews 3.14. He writes, for we have come to share in Christ. And interestingly enough, when he talks about we have come to share, that word for share is a different Greek word. That's koineo. And then he goes on and says, if indeed we... Wait, hold on. That is... No, yeah, we're good. No, sorry. I am lost in my notes. Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ. That is the me'echo. That is the correct Greek word there. And that talks about a full sharing in Christ. And then in Hebrews 2.14, sorry, same verse, different chapter. He, he writes, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that word for share is uh, koineo, a uh, different Greek word. And then he goes on and says, Christ himself likewise partook. That word partook is meeko. It, it's, it's the same Greek word that he's using here to talk about how we who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and in none of those cases is he talking about a partial sharing. It is a full sharing. It is a full participation of the two people or of the person um, in whatever he is sharing in. So we must not think that this having shared in the Holy Spirit is not a full sharing. That's not what the author is relaying or communicating to us. Then he goes on to talk about how they who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, that is the revelation of, of Christ, they, they know the revelation of the Son, they, they, they know the goodness of the word of God, the truths of it, and the powers of the age to come, which may be a reference to signs and wonders mentioned back in Hebrews 2 verse 4, or more likely, more simply, the experienced life of a regenerate person with the indwelling spirit. And, and, and those who view the this argument to be about the wilderness generation would say, well, the powers of the age to come are the miracles done in the wilderness. But that brings us to the last participle that describes this group, and it's a key participle, right? It's the consequence. Then fall away, right? This is actually a Greek word that happens only once in the New Testament. Um, and it's actually made up of two Greek words. It's, the Greek word is parapipto, and it's made up of para and pipto. One means to uh, be alongside of, to be next to, to be near. Um, the other one means to fall. It's used in Ezekiel five times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And each instance that it is used in Ezekiel, it means faithless, to transgress, to sin. It's actually not the Greek word for apostasy. Uh, though the context can give it that sense, that, that meaning. Even in extra-biblical usage, it means a variety of things relating to falling aside, making a mistake, to fail, or even by opportunity or, or by chance. And no other instant does it mean straight-up apostasy as we understand apostasy. That is to turn your back on your faith, to deny Christ, at least not on its own. The context, though, can lead us to that understanding. It's why some translations do translate it as apostasy. But quite literally, it means to fall away or to fall aside. And so the question for us then is, well, what does it mean to fall away? Does falling away mean apostasy? Well, Hebrews 3.12 and 4.11, again, the letter, the author, he helps us out with this. In Hebrews 3.12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now there, in 3.12, the Greek word where we get apostasy from, that is there in that text, where it's translated in the ESV as to fall away from the living God. 
Then Hebrews 4.11, it's another Greek word from either of these verses. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now all these words for falling away can essentially mean from falling from the faith. It can mean apostasy. And when we look at the context of how falling away is used in Hebrews, falling away means judgment. It means not to enter into the kingdom, not to enter into the promised rest. And so if we apply this falling away to those who are believers... Well, that is apostasy. But then the question, and we'll get to the apostasy thing in a moment, the question then becomes, if these are believers, why is it then impossible to restore those who have fallen away, who have fallen to the side of the straight and narrow road, why is it impossible for them to be restored again to repentance? Well, the author gives us the answer. He says, well, because they're, they're crucifying again the Son. And they're crucifying again the Son to their own harm. He, he's more explicit about this idea of crucifying the Son again in Hebrews 10, 26, 27. And, and another warning, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, willful sin, doing it not without shame, not without remorse, but doing it deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after being enlightened, there are, no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This isn't about rewards. This is judgment, eternal judgment. Those who turn against Christ will face a fiery judgment, whether they turn against him before they come to know him, or as the author says, after they've been enlightened. Not only have they done it to their own harm, but they hold Christ up to contempt. In other words, they disgrace the Son, Again, in Hebrews 10, verse 29, the author says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Those are strong words. And this is what people are doing who have been enlightened by the truth, but yet go on sinning. You can't restore. It is impossible to restore them. You can't crucify the Son again. And that's key there. We need to understand that. There's no re-crucifying Christ. This is a key Catholic heresy. Every time they do Mass, that's, just, that's what they're doing. You can go to the Catholic, Catholic Catechism of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Explicitly states it at Mass, what they are doing. We are crucifying the Son again. We are asking Him to die, to, to shed His blood again. It's a bloodless sacrifice. And as we'll get to later in Hebrews, there is no atonement without blood. So I don't know how it atones, but they say the Catholic Church is what they believe. And if you don't believe it, well, you're, you're a heretic because you're going against the teachings of the Catholic Church. But what God says, God doesn't say you can crucify the Son again in any means or any way. Hebrews is clear on this. Hebrews alone. Hebrews 7.27, the author says, Christ has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing forever an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.27-28, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once, 
to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It is foolish to think that we can ask Jesus Christ to once again come and bleed for us in a bloodless sacrifice for our sins. He's done that once for all. To ask him to do it again, we bring contempt upon him. We disgrace his name. And we do it for our own harm, thinking that we are securing for ourselves a salvation that is there when it's not there, because he's already offered it once. Hebrews 10.10, by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's already dealt with our sins. Praise God, right? We don't need to ask him, please die for me again. No, you're, you're not that special. Your sin's not that powerful. His grace is much more infinite than, than your sin. His blood is much more sufficient. He doesn't need to bleed again for you. You just need to go to him. It's covered. It's been done. But to ask him to think that you can crucify him again, that's, that's a damnable belief. You need to drop it. You need to repent. You need to trust in what he has said and what he has done. So then, I guess the question begged, the question's begged, it's asked, how is it then impossible for someone to not be restored via repentance? Why wouldn't God restore them to repentance? Right, if our God is, is gracious and he's full of grace and we sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, why is it impossible? Well, they've essentially gone too far. Their hearts are too hard. This fits with the warnings of, of, of Hebrews. Consider the second warning of Hebrews 3 and 4, where the author says, as long as it's called today, don't harden your hearts when you hear his voice, right? Lest you fall away and fail to enter the promised rest. Consider the warning we're in the midst of, right? Last week we talked about this. Don't be dull of hearing. Don't be sluggish or lazy to what you hear put into practice. Why? Well, because eventually your soul, your heart will become so hard you'll deny outright God in every way. You will deny him in every way in your life. You won't respond to his voice anymore. You won't respond to his spirit. You'll be like the unrighteous of Romans 1. The people who, they know God's out there, but they continue to suppress the truth. And because they continue to suppress the truth, God gives them over to their own desires because that's what they want. They want to worship the creature, the creature rather than the creator. They want to satisfy themselves rather than satisfy or seek to please God. And so God hands them over. Now, maybe you say, but I thought we just went over about how these people, in this illustration, how they are believers. Are they not saved? Isn't the author writing to believers? Yes, the author is writing to those who believe that they believe. Well, aren't believers eternally secured? Absolutely. And now we have the tension, right? Believers are secured. And I want to establish that right now. I want to make sure there's no confusion on this. If you get anything, if there's only one thing that you get from this morning's message, know that those who are saved, they are eternally secured forever. So I got a bunch of verses, passages we're going to go through. I'm not going to read all of them. Well, I'm going to read all of them except one. The first one, John 6, 37, 44. But I'm going to read them because this is important for us to establish and to know and not to doubt. Okay, so John 6, 37, 44. And then John 10, 28, 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. That includes yourself. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Out of the Father's hand. So we have two hands of the Trinity holding on to us. 
Romans 8.28, I'm going to read all this to the end. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, or the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as shaped to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, right? Your own life, if you are saved, you yourself cannot pull away from the grip of God if you are saved. Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This does not mean that you will not have seasons of doubt, that you will not have seasons of darkness, where you may question your own faith. That, that's not what this is saying. This is talking about for eternity you are secure. It is not dependent on you or how you feel. 1 Corinthians 1.8.9, Paul says, Who will sustain you to the end? Who will? That's Christ. He's not, it's not a question. Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 1, 13, 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You can't receive a guarantee. Like, God who is perfect, all-knowing, is not going to guarantee your inheritance until you require possession of it, and then all of a sudden take away that guarantee. Well, that, that's not how a guarantee works. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will see it through. 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body become blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power, all power is guarding your salvation. Jude 24.25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So the believer is eternally secure. When you are regenerate, the Spirit dwells within you, you are sealed with it, that's it. You are His forever. Well, then why does the author speak of falling away? If falling away, as understood as apostasy, why is he speaking of falling away if it's not possible for the believer? And why does he speak as if it is possible? We need to remember that our God is a God of both means and ends. Right? He's not just a God of results, but he's a God that ordains the things that achieve those results. We pray to an all-sovereign God, as we're commanded to, who already knows our needs before we ask them. 
We evangelize and make disciples, but it is God who causes them to be born again. Our sin has been forgiven, yet we still confess and repent. The warnings of Scripture are part of the means that God uses to ensure that we remain faithful to the end. Now let me give you an example of this from the Gospels, from Jesus himself. Think of Mark 13, right? And you can go to Matthew 24 for Matthew's account of this. Luke has an account of it as well. I think it's in 17 or 18. But think of Mark 13, 20. Jesus says, If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then in verse 22, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And there, the understanding there in the Greek is it's not possible. So many false people will, will come up and try to lead astray the elect, as if it were possible, but it's not. But yet he goes on in verses 21, 23, 33, 35, and 37 to warn the elect not to be deceived. He talks about if possible, but it's not. The elect can't be deceived, and they won't be deceived. But hey, watch out. Don't be deceived. Be on the lookout. Don't believe them. So he tells us in one breath it's not possible, and in the same breath warns us not to fall for what is not possible. But see, this is how God works out our salvation. Right? Philippians 2, 12, 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. The means of our salvation. But he goes on to describe specifically the means of our salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, when we are saved, we are saved. Good. It's, and this, this work of salvation is not a works righteousness. We must not think that we're earning our salvation. But when you come to Christ, you are saved. Then you are being saved, and you will be saved when we are glorified, right? We have three senses of salvation there. And right now, we are on the stage of being saved. And part of being saved is God working in us. Our process of being sanctified, uh, being transformed into the image of his Son. And that is the work that the Father is doing in us. And part of that work is us hearing the warnings and heeding the warnings. And we will heed the warnings because the Spirit's in us. And we believe Him and we trust in Him. And in regard to there being people who partake of the life of the visible church, that is people who have been baptized, who have partake of communion, who have been affirmed, by elders, by brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, you are one of us. You serve faithfully. You are one of us who have received the word of God with joy, who profess with their mouth, Lord, Lord, but yet are not saved. Consider what Scripture teaches about the matter. First, I want us to recall the parable of the sower that we spoke of last week, and we're not going to go to it. But if you remember, two of the three soils received the word. Perhaps the word is the heavenly gift that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Maybe it's the enlightened moments. But yet those two soils that received the word of joy, they, they were unfruitful, right? They received it, but the cares of this world, persecution, the trials, the tri trials and tribulation proved them not to be fruitful, which meant no kingdom for them. Right? This is like mistrust and timorous and pilgrim's progress. They make it up the hill of difficulty. They're before the beautiful palace, but the lions cause them to run out of fear. And why are those lions there? To test the genuine faith 
of believers. Consider also Matthew 7.21, which I think is 6.4 through 8 of Hebrews is a dire warning, but Matthew 7.21 through 23 is the most, most scary warning out there, I think. Now everyone who says to me, this is Christ speaking, in his beautiful Sermon on the Mount, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who professes with their mouth, not everyone who does many signs and many wonders in my name will enter the kingdom. Why? Because they weren't obedient. They didn't do the will of my Father. Consider three other passages as well. 1 John 2.19. John, if you remember 1 John, 1 John is written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life, our salvation is, isn't something that we are to doubt. We're not called, we will have moments of doubt, yes. But we're not called to remain in doubt. We're not called to, well, I hope I make it. It's a hope that we know. It's a confidence that we have. This is what drives missions. This is what drives a faithful giving because it's like I know where I'm going. So if trials and tribulations hasten my arrival in glory, so be it. It's not a guessing game. I know. That's why John writes 1 John. But here in 1 John 2.19, he writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That might become plain that they are all are not of us. These are people who were with the church in the beginning, with the apostles in the beginning. They were with them. They thought they were brothers. But over time, it became obvious that they were not brothers. And so they went out from them. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, Paul says, There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Boy, that really flies in the face of the American push for unity in the church at all costs. There must be factions within the church. Well, yes. We don't seek unity at all costs. We seek unity around truth. That's what we need. Those who are unified will be unified around the truth, not other matters. We're unified around the truth. And so there must be factions among you. When you unify around the truth, sooner or later, through typically through external circumstances, those who truly are unified around the truth, they will be made known. And those who aren't, they will leave. Peter, 2 Peter 2.1, Peter says, But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even deny the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So there will be false teachers among you. In other words, these false teachers, they will be one of you. They will rise in your ranks. They will be baptized in your churches. They will be catechized by you, but they will become a false teacher. This is why we need to be very careful with what teachers teach. We mustn't say, but, but he or she has been with the church for so long. Surely what they're saying can't be bad. Well, test it to Scripture. Does their teaching fit what Scripture teaches? Don't look at how long they've been with the church. Peter is clear. False teachers will come out. Paul right? I don't have it in there, but his final words to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, I think that's the right chapter, he, he, he goes and says, look, there will be wolves that come from among you, you who are elders. Be watchful. Watch out for them. So by all of these warnings, and especially the warning that we're at in Hebrews, no one is going to be without excuse. And by these warnings, the work of God is accomplished. As one commentator put it well, as I was struggling to wrestle with how to communicate this, so I'm, I'm just stealing this quote, he writes, the author doesn't attend, the author of Hebrews, 
doesn't attend to a question that often holds our attention with this passage. Right, we need to be careful we don't get snagged on the thorns. He doesn't consider whether some of those addressed aren't truly believers, for to do so would be to distract him from his main purpose and would blunt the force of the warning. He's giving this illustration purely out of a pastoral concern. His concern is for people to be faithful, to repent of their faithlessness, to repent of their sins, of their laziness, and to stay faithful to the end. Because as Scripture is clear, the one who perseveres to the end, like if we were to go back to Mark 13, if we go back to the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is clear. Those who persevere to the end are the ones that enter the kingdom. Those who fall away do not. But there's one thing that remains, and perhaps you've been aching for me to get to this. Perhaps you think, but this is a loss of rewards. This isn't about salvation. You're going too far. You're going too hard. This is about loss of salvation. I mean, loss of rewards. Think of Paul when he, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, only as through fire. That's, that's loss of rewards. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians 3 is, is actually the ministry, the work of the ministry, the work of, of the church. It's the immediate context, but surely it could carry over that the person's saved, but he loses a reward. He loses the, the vain work that he put so much effort into. Well, this is where the last two verses, the agricultural illustration, help us. So let's go look at verses 7 through 8. Let's read it again since it's been a while. For land has drunk the rain that often falls on it, produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So land has drunk the rain that has, been, that has received rain to be used and produces a useful crop, not bad fruit, but good fruit, receives a blessing. This idea of blessing and cursing of the land comes from Deuteronomy, especially 28 and 29. But if it produces a worthless crop, it is near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Now, note, what is burned here? It's, right? That's the land. But what does the land represent? See, it's not the crop that is burned, or it could be. I'll get to that in a moment. Here, the author says it's the land that is burned. Well, what does the land represent? the individual, right? It's not the fruit that gets burned. It's the land. It's a loss of entry into the kingdom. But yet again, maybe you're thinking, well, no, I still think it's loss of rewards. I still think it's the blessedness of this life, just as it was for the people in the wilderness, right? They, they went too far, and so God cut them off. They couldn't, even Moses didn't enter into the promised land, but surely Moses, yes, and he is, is with the promised land son right now. He's with Christ right now. And admittedly, burning land was a common practice in the first century, where if you had a land that produced thorns and thistles, you would burn the land, and essentially by burning the crop, right? It's, you'd be talking about burning the crop as you talk about burning land for the sake of restoring the land, to reuse it again. But again, the author has already said that it can't be restored. So why would the author be talking about burning land for the hopes of restoration when he just said they can't be restored? And when you consider all the other warnings and the main argument of the letter. See, every warning progresses from inferior to superior, lesser to greater, both in blessings and in judgments. 
right? What they did of old, what they received as blessings and as judgments is lesser than what comes under the new covenant. So why would we all of a sudden make this equal? It, it, would not, it does not fit if we believe this to be a loss of, of life or an earthly thing. People of the wilderness of the rebellion suffered an earthly judgment because they had an earthly message. The author of Hebrews will talk about this explicitly later. But what kind of judgment will we receive having refused to obey the message from heaven? It's not the same. And it must be greater. And indeed, it is greater. And indeed, there is a real danger of being part of the community of believers and on the day of judgment being found with those in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus otherwise would not have said it. After all, consider the author's exhortation at the end of this warning in Hebrews 6.12. He reminds us, he says, so that you may not be sluggish. I write these things so you may not be sluggish, but imitators are those who through faith and patient inherit the promises. What are the promises? Right? This is the whole point of the warning. This is the whole point of the illustration because if you're sluggish in your hearing, you won't receive these promises. And he's not talking about earthly blessings. He's going to go on and talk about what these promises are, and he uses Abraham as the example. What promise did Abraham inherit in this life? He didn't. He was told the promise, but he didn't actually receive the, the fruition of that promise, but it was by faith that he inherited it, by trusting in God, to trust in the Son that was to come. He, hasn't, he did not inherit the promises until he died. So if the author is saying, don't be sluggish so that you may inherit these promises that we receive in eternity, why would, in this illustration, it not pertain to those promises, not pertain to things of eternal matters? Therefore, for us all, regardless of where you land on this passage, the thing is, you can hold a... For, a couple of different views on this and still come to the same point of, that the author of Hebrews is making, and that is we need to heed his voice. So though we may have these discussions, we may even debate the, the right understanding of the illustration, the point, the application, regardless of the illustration, is the same by the author. It's don't be sluggish, don't be lazy in your hearing, obey his word, therefore let us examine ourselves. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Like, don't you want to know that Christ is in you? It should be, yes, I do. So don't be afraid to test yourself. Don't be afraid to have a brother or sister to challenge you in your faith. Don't be afraid to grow in the doctrine of our faith. It will by doing so, you will test yourself. And in doing so, you will come to know Christ. Because you will see him, you will see his spirit in you. And that will fuel you with confidence and assurance as you go through this life. But you can't do that if you're sluggish in what you hear from the word of God. So let us keep the good work of God in our lives, trusting him to complete it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for allowing us to come to this passage, to wrestle with it. And perhaps there are questions. I'm sure there are. Even I have questions I still wrestle with, tensions that are still there, that are unresolved. 
But Father, we ask that you would help us to focus on what is important, that we don't get stuck in the weeds, that we wouldn't abandon the efforts, the, 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 the desire for truth either, but that you would keep us striving for the truth so that we may know it as well as we can and as well as you intend us to know it. But help us to be at peace with the things that we don't know. Having sought the truth, having wrestled with us, help us to be okay with, I'm not sure. But Father, give us the confidence in the things that do matter, the salvation of our souls, the assurance of our salvation, who your son is, how we are to live. Help us to be faithful in that matter. Help us to hear the warnings and to heed the warnings. May none of us be found to, to fail the test or, or to fall away. May we all submit ourselves before you and, and, and allow the Spirit to fill us and allow the Spirit to continue to sanctify and work in us as you seek to complete this um, long work, uh, this eternal work in us, Father, so that we would be presented blameless before you on the day of judgment. Help us to allow you to do your thing. Father, we thank you that we are able to come together as a body, and we ask that we would be encouraged this morning as we are challenged. Maybe some are doubting their salvation now, but may they be encouraged in, the, in your word that talks about how no one would, be, no one would perish who's given to your son. He will not cast any of us out. And help us to be encouraged that we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so as we come to the table, Father, we ask that your spirit will convict us as necessary, but that your spirit would also encourage us. And as we come to take the bread and the cup, that you bless the elements, that your spirit, your word, your truth would remind us of what the elements represent, that the work upon the cross is finished. Your son has come. He's died on the cross once for all, for, for everyone, for all sins, for those who put their faith and trust in him, and that it is done. And, and so, Father, we lift up our sins to you. We give them to you. In the name and the blood of your Son, we ask for forgiveness. We ask for wisdom for, to help us in repentance, for the grace for help in time of need. And as we come away from the table, may we go away, those sinners redeemed, encouraged, forgiven. May we be faithful witnesses of the gospel. May we continue to admonish and encourage one another, exhort one another with the word of Christ. May we do so of hearts of thanksgiving as we continue to sing songs of praise and of glory to your great name. Father, we ask these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, we will go into a time of communion. If you are a believer who is not walking in unrepentant sin, you may come on up, grab the elements, take them to your seats, and then Matt will come up and lead us in taking the elements together, and we'll close in a couple of songs of praise.